this week on Hope for the Broken. We have difficulty in the finite terms of our minds to be able to understand this holy God by which Jesus allows us to relate to. But when we gain a picture of who that God is, oh, it changes everything. The truth that God stands alone and has no rival is profound. It means there's nothing in your life, there's nothing in the world that could possibly surmount the limitless power available in our almighty God. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Life Lessons. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part seven titled, Battle of the Gods. Well, we are in the middle of a teaching series that we've entitled Life Lessons, and we're working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 5 and 6 here this morning. And this has been a fascinating study for me. I don't know if you guys have been enjoying as we walk through uh, these stories of the Old Testament, these stories of 1 Samuel, and they've been eye-opening to me and been a challenge to me personally. I, I pray that that has been the case for you. But the time period that we're studying the nation of Israel here in 1 Samuel is actually a very dark time. 1 Samuel picks up where Judges, the book of Judges, ends. And at the end of the book of Judges, we learned that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. This was a period of spiritual darkness that was cast over the nation of Israel. And also during that time, there was a little girl, a, a lady, who was crying out to God for a son that God would just give her a son. Her name was Hannah. And we read about her prayer and her passionate plea and that God answered that prayer in giving her Samuel. And Samuel's name literally means heard from God. And so, so Samuel was a, was a blessing from God to Hannah. Now Hannah had made a promise to God that if God were to see fit to give her a son, that she would give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. And she did just that. She gave Samuel back to the Lord. He was serving in the temple, in the tabernacle uh, underneath Eli. Now, Eli was this man that was kind of spiritually apathetic, and he had two sons that were very evil, and they were serving as, as uh, priests. Uh, for the nation of Israel, and we learned some of their sinful, evil deeds, spiritual abuse that they were enacting upon God's people. And as a result, God punished them severely. And we saw how Samuel stood out from those evil men, and he pursued holiness instead of those acts of evil. And as a result, the, the, the uh, Israelites found themselves in battle with the Philistines. And, and we learned last week that they were relying upon superstition instead of upon a relationship with the Lord. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant as a, as a weapon, a, a superstition to, to defeat the Philistines in battle only to lose a significant number of field soldiers to the Philistines in battle. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's most sacred uh, possession. 
And so from there, we are going to pick up from there, and we're going to examine uh, the ark's journey uh, through, the, through the land of, of Philista and, and how it's going to come back in a message that I've entitled, Battle of the Gods. Battle of the Gods. We recently purchased a new vehicle, and when I say new, it's new to us, it's not brand new. Uh, and when I say purchased, um, we were basically given a vehicle. It's my parents' vehicle. We bought their 2020 Hyundai Palisade. Now, this vehicle is the nicest vehicle we have ever owned, right? I mean, it is an amazing vehicle. It has an incredible cruise control feature, right? It not only can keep, maintain a safe distance between you and the vehicle in front of you, it does it on its own, like you don't have to touch the brake or anything, right? It also steers itself when it's in cruise control mode. Uh, Kathy and I were going somewhere and I put it on cruise control and I felt like the car was like fighting me, like why are you wanting to turn before I'm ready to turn, right? And it was just this weird thing. And so I was sitting there going, I think, I think this car might be steering itself. And so I did something that you should never do. And I took my hands off the wheel and I said, Kathy, look, it's driving itself. And there was this giant turn coming up in the highway. And we're, you know, we're going 70 miles an hour because I don't ever speed. And we were going down the highway and it took the turn by itself. I mean, I was blown away at this thing. And, uh, and so I thought, well, man, what kind of car is this? You can get in and never even have to drive the vehicle. It drives itself. It's amazing. And then alarms started going off. Beep, 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 beep. And it told me to put my hands back on the wheel. So I went from being amazed to being freaked out. Like, how does it know my hands are not on the wheel, right? And so I put my hands back on the wheel and, and basically just held them there because it steered itself. You know, I think a lot of times we approach our spiritual lives much like we do cruise control. We don't put a whole lot of effort into our spiritual lives when things are going good. Right? We, we don't uh, pursue the Lord. We're kind of like, hey, I don't want to rock the boat. I'm just kind of coasting along in my spiritual journey. Well, what we're learning is the nation of Israel was doing just that. They were just coasting. They were not interested in pursuing a deeper relationship with God. They were just coasting. And alarms started sounding. And things started happening that, that drove them back to saying we need to be intentional in our spiritual pursuits. I think God is calling us to do the same in our day and time. To avoid the tendency to put it on spiritual cruise control and instead to be intentional in our faith development. And so we're seeing the results of, of spiritual drifting into darkness. And it led to a significant defeat and, and the capture of the most sacred symbol, the Ark of the Covenant. And in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're going to hear the final alarms sounding that is eventually going to drive the Israelites back to an intentional relationship with God. And when we do, we will see the revival that comes from being intentional and their spiritual development. So today we're going to take a look at the uh, ark's route. We're going to take a look at the ark's recovery. And then we're going to look at the ark's respect. And then I want to discuss two life lessons from this study of First uh, Samuel. So let's first look at the ark's route. When I say route, I'm really referring to the ark's journey. 
And what's going to happen to the ark is the Philistines have captured it and they're going to take it back to various cities. And we're going to see the reason why it takes this tour. Let's read first verse 1 of uh, chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. It says, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now there were five major Philistine cities that were located in the promised land during this day and time that the Israelites had to navigate. And Ashdod was the religious epicenter of the Philistines. It's where their primary god, Dagon's temple was. Now mythology was very common uh, amongst the, the Philistines. And the Philistines believed that Dagon was the father of the storm, storm god Baal-Hadu. Now you'll read about that god uh, throughout the Old Testament uh, accounts. But Dagon was depicted as a statue who was uh, half man and half fish. So he wasn't a mermaid, he was a merman, right? Um, I thought that was funny, uh, but... And, and they placed the Ark of the Covenant of God in the same temple as this statue of Dagon. Now, why would they do that? Well, in, in that day and time, it was a common belief that when you were victorious in battle, it's because your God was greater than the other God. And so they thought the capture of the Ark was a symbol of Dagon being at least equal to Almighty God, if not stronger and superior to Almighty God. And however, this is going to be it's going to prove to be very faulty thinking because the Lord is not inferior to anyone. You know what I mean? So check out what happens next, verse three. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So think he's he's bowed down to the ark of the Lord. So they, the Philistines, took Dagon and put him back in his place. Poor Dagon. This supposed superior God couldn't even pick himself back up. He had to be reset by the Philistines. Verse 4, But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the, on the ground again before the ark of the Lord. But this time, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So Dagon is lying headless and handless and paying homage to the Ark of the Covenant. Now head is symbolic of wisdom. Hands is symbolic of power to these foreign gods, these little g gods. And so here Dagon is, he is wisdomless and powerless before Almighty God. Aren't we all that way? Aren't we all without wisdom compared to Almighty God? Aren't we all powerless in comparison to Almighty God? And this Battle of the gods proved that Almighty God was victorious and that He has no rivals before Him. Now you would think that seeing this play out, that the Philistines would say, there is something about this ark, right? But they don't. They're a prideful people. So check out what happens next. Verse 6. 
the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, "Hmm, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. So they didn't learn from the defeat of their God. So God afflicted them with tumors. What are these tumors? Well, because of what is going to be mentioned in chapter 6, most scholars believe, uh, because it mentions in chapter 6 about rats, most scholars believe that the tumors and the rats going together has something to do with the bubonic plague. And so when you see these two mentioned together, think a bubonic plague has hit the people of Philista. So think that when you read tumors. Finally, the people are like, this isn't going well. We're all sick. We're dying. And this begins the tour of the ark through the region of Philista. It leaves Ashdod and goes to Gath. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, perhaps that city is, uh, you remember it, uh, because that's where Goliath was from. In chapter 17, we're going to read about David and Goliath. And Goliath was the giant that we learn is from the city of Gath. Look what happens once it arrives to Gath, verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So the people of Gath are are having all this anxiety all of a sudden, and now they start seeing the effects of the bubonic plague. Verse 10, so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. I, I think this is humorous. As soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They brought around the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people, right? So they don't want the ark. They're hearing the stories of what's happening. Verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So think about the ark's route. It was positioned in Shiloh, in the tabernacle. It was taken out to the field of battle at Ebenezer. It was captured there at Ebenezer and then taken to Ashdod. From Ashdod it then went to Gath, and from Gath it then went to Ekron. So five places it's been, and what we'll learn is a matter of seven months. And it's making this tour throughout all of Philista, the ark's route. Now let's look at the ark's recovery. Chapter 6 tells us about how the ark returns and it's recovered back in Israel. Let's look at verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. All right. If I'm having tumors, I'm sending it away immediately. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not waiting seven months, right? They were gluttons for punishment. Verse 2, And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send the ark away, 
Do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Now, I want to meet the guy that's in charge of having to make these things. Like, how does he know what to make, right? Like, let me see your tumors. That's weird. Um, Perhaps God will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why? Now, this is interesting. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away? And they departed. The the Philistines almost knew Israel's history better than the people of Israel knew their own history. They're realizing, listen, the same God that brought the plagues to Egypt is the same God that's bringing the plagues to us. We got to get rid of this thing. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would not let the people go, but we need to let the ark go, right? And so this is where where they're at. And the ark is now headed back to Israel. Look at what happens. Verse 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land to Bet Shemesh, then it is he, God, who has done us this great harm. But if it doesn't go there, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us and it happened by coincidence. Now you may say, this is, this is an odd chain of events. Why do we have the detail about the milking cows and the yoke and the calves and the cart? Well, what they are doing is they're putting God to the test. They're wanting to see if God is really inflicting them with this. If somehow the the cows turn and come back, well, then it was all by coincidence. But as you know, by your study of God's word, nothing happens with God by coincidence. And so they stack the cards, they stack the deck against God. Well, how did they do that? Well, what would be the maternal nature, the maternal instinct of these two milk cows having just given birth to their calves? What would be the maternal instinct? to turn around and go back for their young, right? And so they're, they're trying to stack the deck against them. Is this really God that has brought this, or is it not? Look at verse 10. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. I just can't help but laugh whenever I read that. I mean, the images of their tumors. Okay. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bet Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Bet Shemesh. So it was obvious that God was directing these cows, right? They went against their maternal instincts lowing it's interesting to have that kind of detail they were lowing it means that they were going almost against their will 
right? Because see, here's the thing. When God is involved in it, God's going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish, right? And so he is leading these cows to where they need to go, and they turn neither to the left or the right. Now, God's GPS on these two milk cows was amazing. I want you to consider the exact spot that God took these cows to. Verse 13. Now the people of Bet Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. So this is sometime around the, the time of May or June. And when they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Can you imagine? Seven months wondering, God, where are you? God, have you been defeated? God, are you, why are you not showing up in our midst? And seven months later, there, the, the, the symbol of the presence of God has returned. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of, of Joshua of Bet Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. Hmm. A stone just happened to be there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which these golden figures were and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh. So we have the ark's route and then the ark's return. Let's take a look at number three, the ark's respect. The presence of God was something that was to be cherished and treated with reverence among God's people. And the Israelites finally learned this, but they learn it at a great cost. Verse 19, And he, being God, struck some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, how many of you, your translation doesn't have 70 there, it has 50,000? Anybody? Okay. You might be saying, what Bible are you reading from, Pastor? Because that's not what my Bible says. Here's what I want you to know. When you read um, the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew uh, and geared towards the audience of the Hebrews, numbers to the Hebrews are different than numbers to us in the West. Numbers to the Hebrews painted a picture. It wasn't necessarily for accounting purposes like we view numbers. So this painted a picture the, the original manuscripts literally say, if you literally translate it, of the people, 70 men, 50,000 men. That's the original word-for-word -word translation there. So what I think the author is trying to say is that of the 50,000 men that were there, 70 of them were struck dead. Now again, I could be wrong, right? This is, this is one interpretation of many regarding this verse but either way the point remains the same there was a devastating amount of people who were killed why were they killed because they looked upon the ark 
Well, why is that such a devastating thing? Well, really, the picture here is that they looked inside the ark. And there was very clear instructions that no one was to look inside the ark. In fact, when the ark sat in the Holy of Holies, there was only one person that could enter into the Holy of Holies. That was the high priest. And only on one day a year, the the day known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And even then, the high priest could not look into the ark. And he was careful to even look at it at all because the presence of God could strike him down. Now, surely these Israelites knew that. But they didn't treat the Ark of the Covenant with the respect in which it deserved and demanded. And so 70 were struck dead. Verse 20, Then the men of Bet Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And so they sent the messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So what they finally do is they finally say, you know what, we need to start treating this the way it's demanded to, to be treated. And they called on the priestly lineage to come and take care of the ark. This respect finally is going to spark a great revival across the nation of Israel. We're going to see that next week. So we have the ark's route, we have the ark's recovery, and then we have the ark's respect. What does this mean for us today in the 21st century? I mean, we don't have an ark of the covenant of God right? We don't, we don't have a, a, a relic by which we pay homage to or treat with great respect. That's because in the new covenant, Jesus has died, and now we have a personal relationship with God. Jesus has become our great high priest. No longer can, do we have to go through a me, another mediator. Jesus has satisfied that on our behalf. But that relationship with God ought to be treated with the utmost of respect. And I think that that's some of the life lessons that we have here. Two major life lessons. Number one, God has no rival. God has no rival. One of the obvious themes in the book of 1 Samuel, let alone the entire Bible, is that the Lord God Almighty is supreme. He's simply above everything. There is no other God that can rival our God. He stands alone. The Lord is in a league all to himself. Isaiah 44, 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And besides me, there is no God. God has no rival. What is so special about this one true living God? I want you to think about the attributes that he possesses. His very character. Who this God is. Did you know that our God is not surprised by circumstances that come our way? You know why? Because he's sovereign over them. God's not threatened by competition. God's not served by human hands. God does not need you. God does not need me. He is self-sustaining. 
God will ultimately judge the world. And by the way, we're told at this God that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus as Lord. Our God is limitless. There are no limitations upon God Almighty. He is so great and so mighty, there's no limit to His being, no limit to His power. He's not limited by our thoughts. In fact, the Bible says that He can do immeasurably more than what we think or can even imagine. I think we have difficulty in the finite terms of our minds to be able to understand this holy God by which Jesus allows us to relate to. But when we gain a picture of who that God is, oh, it changes everything. It changes everything about our our approach to life. The truth that God stands alone and has no rival is profound. You know what it means? It means there's nothing in your life There's nothing in the world that could possibly surmount the limitless power available in our almighty God. And that powerful God desires a relationship with you. It's amazing. The things you and I battle, God is greater. Do you believe that? The challenges facing our world, God is greater. The darkness that you feel that you are in right now, God is greater than that. Therefore, beloved, we must invite the limitless power of God to move freely in and through our lives and in and through our church. But so many times we don't allow that, do we? We don't make room for that. In our approach to cruise control, we rely more on our own strength and our own abilities. Let me tell you what that is. When we rely upon our own strength, you know what we do? We take God because we believe Him to be the true God, but we put them in the pantheon of our lives along with our own strength, the statues of our own strength, the statues of our own abilities. And you know what happens? When we bring God into the pantheon of our own temple, He'll strike it down. Because no one rivals our God, including you and including me. There is a source of truth and power that stands taller than our giants. Beloved, I don't know what the giant is that you are facing, the hurdle that you are looking at, the mountain that you are having to to overcome in your life. One thing I know is this, it'll all bow before the Almighty God. God desires to have victory in and through your life in any and every circumstance. And coming to the realization that God has no rival in our lives means that we allow Him to tear down the little g-gods that we have erected in our lives God has no rivals will you give all of yourself to him you know there are some under the banner of tolerance that have suggested that that the Judeo-Christian God that Jesus is one of many gods leading to the same place 
Like God sits at the top of this mountain, and just like there are many roads to get up that mountain, there's many different religions that will take you to the same place. Here's the problem with that, is that Christianity doesn't say that. Jesus says what in John 14, 6? He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father but by me. God does not have rivals. God is not equal to other means. God stands above. And this almighty, holy, all-powerful, limitless God desires a relationship with every human being by which He has created, but it only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that makes God accessible to us. God has no rival. Allow Him to reign supremely in your life. The second life lesson is this. The fear of God is a good thing. I would even say it this way. The fear of God is a must in our lives. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now we often think when we read that, fear God, I mean, this, this fear is not what you and I think of whenever we think of what it means to be afraid of something, terrified of something. No, this is a fear that means the utmost respect for. Do we honestly have the utmost respect for God and His holiness? You know how you can tell if you do? If you truly respect God that way, you'll want to be close to Him. But we have in our study, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, we have three different approaches to God. We have, first of all, the, uh, the Philistines. They feared God, but not in a way in which they respected God. And what did they do? They pushed God out of their lives. I think we live in a culture, beloved, where I see a lot of people pushing God out of their lives. They don't want God in their life. They don't want the conviction of sin that comes in their life. They just keep pushing God away. Why? Because they don't respect Almighty God for who He is and the holiness that He, he has within Him's character. And so they push God away. Then we have the Israelites in Bet Shemesh. What are they doing? They're not respecting God because they're going against His Word. Right? What is God's word? You are not to look upon the ark. And there they were. They were looking inside of the ark. Not really believing that God would be serious about his word. Oh, but God is serious about his word. And then finally, we have the Israelites that begin to realize and say, you know what, we need to fear the Lord, this holy, this awesome, this amazing God that desires a relationship for us. When we put Him in the right place in our lives, then that brings blessings. Three approaches to God in this text. Here's my question for you and for me. Which camp are we in? Are we pushing God out of our lives? Are we treating God flippantly? not living according to His Word? Or have we truly placed God in the place that He deserves in our life and that is on the throne of our hearts? These are the three approaches to God. Let me show you what it means to fear the Lord. The Israelites that finally sacrificed and finally consecrated themselves called the men of Kiriath-Jerim to, to honor the ark 
they're the ones that demonstrated what it means to fear the Lord. And King David, he taught us how to fear the Lord. After his sin with Bathsheba, his bout with adultery, he pens this psalm in Psalm 51 that is a truly repentant heart, which is where true fear of the Lord begins. And in Psalm chapter 51, verses 16 and 17, this is what he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do you know when you have the fear of the Lord, you know what your disposition will be? Oh God, my heart breaks. My sinfulness is very apparent. But thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you, God, for dying in my place. That is a life lived in respect of God. And those who have a true reverence for God gladly receive Him, even when it means conviction, even when it means repentance. And you see the difference. The Philistines pushed God away Some of the Jews disrespected God. Oh, but when the Jews began respecting God and pursuing Him, revival came. Now, I don't know if you've had your head in the sand, but there seems to be a revival that's breaking out among our college campuses. Anybody reading about that? It's awesome. You know what the true test of revival is? If it's long-lasting. The effect that it has once the initial catalyst has occurred. That'll be the true test of revival. Because when we meet with God, it changes us. And I don't know about you, but I've been praying for this for a long time. And I have believed that I would see another great awakening even in my time. And this could be it, beloved. This could be it. But let me tell you something. The spiritual renewal that we all desire in our day and time begins with a fear of God. It requires that renewal to begin first in us. Listen, revival is not for them out there. It's for us in here. It requires a humble submission to Jesus as Lord, as boss of our lives. Renewal begins when followers of Jesus humble themselves before their God when they commit to love Him with all of their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, when they repent of their sin, when they seek the will of God in all matters, then is where renewal begins. And we're going to see that in the pages of 1 Samuel to come. God has no rival, beloved. And the fear of the Lord is a great thing. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. 
If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.